Hi, welcome to the 24th episode of Occupy America Social Network, uh, Occupy Interview. Uh, my name is Terry Bain. I'm one of your co-hosts, uh, Robin Kerner, founder of uh, Blue Republicans. Say hi, Robin. Uh, our guest, our special guest this week is Antonio Bueller, uh, Bronze Star Award, uh, did a hitch in Iraq, a veteran. Um, introduce yourself, Antonio. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, uh, my name is Antonio Bueller. I am the founder of the Peaceful Streets Project and Bueller Education. Um, I primarily put my energies towards fighting the police state through the Peaceful Streets Project and fighting uh, traditional education, which I think is destroying our children uh, by promoting alternative education and helping parents pull their kids out of traditional schooling. And I am, as you said, a West Point graduate. I also graduated from the Stanford Graduate School of Education, um, and I also have attended the Harvard Graduate School of Education um, as, as well. So I have my MBA, and I'm working on my education degree. Robin, um, probably you've touched base on the homeschooling thing. Uh, can we can we start there with after you got back out of the military, uh, you did uh, did some investment work, and then you went ahead and did uh, the education thing. Did you have any questions on the on the homeschooling, Robin? I'm. Uh no, I'm waiting. For, I'm just ready for you guys to, to shoot the breeze, and if I hear anything, I'll give you anything too. I will be. Uh, I will come in. I don't okay. Well, any, I hadn't. I don't have any experience in homeschooling. I'm a. Uh, I've been conventionally schooled. Ah. Okay. Well. Well. Conventionally schooled. Uh, Cambridge graduate, right? Uh, that's true. I guess you can't really say that Cambridge is conventional, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really kind of feel like uh, I was close to being homeschooled. I went to state education, so uh, what do you, as, were you homeschooled, Antonio? Did you have any background in that before you started this? No, um, I wish I was homeschooled. Um, I think that I'm like <laughs> the great majority of people who whose parents felt that public education was the only option because they couldn't afford private schooling. And homeschooling uh, really didn't begin as a movement until the 70s, and then it picked up in the 80s. It started with the radical left, and then it picked up in the 80s with the uh, evangelical right. And fortunately for everyone, homeschooling has really gained momentum over the past 10 to 15 years. Now there's over 2 million children who are homeschooled in America today, but it was very different when we were children. I've seen some really good product of the homeschooling. Uh, I've also participated trying to uh, help with three students who were being homeschooled. Um, I have a secondary education license uh, certificate certification from Indiana. So I'm kind of got my feet in both worlds, and I really see a real value to the homeschooling. Uh, what, what do you see as the future of it, Antonio? Well, hopefully it keeps growing. I think that there's tremendous value to the children in a homeschool environment, and I think that there's a lot of value to the parents as well. I think it allows the families to become closer as they can spend more quality time with each other. But academically and intellectually, uh, when it comes to motivation, I think that children are much better off in a homeschool environment or another alternative education environment that embraces progressive education principles than they are in a traditional school, which typically just crushes motivation, love of learning, uh, any desire to seek out knowledge. So I think that the future of homeschooling is considerable. I think it will keep growing, but I think where the real growth is going to happen is an alternative to, to traditional schooling. So new alternative schools that will be popping up and hybrid sort of homeschool, unschool, co-op type uh, situations that allow parents for relatively cheap to pull their kids out of traditional education, which most current private schools I consider traditional education as well, and move them into a truly progressive environment. How uh, possibly the only 
the only weakness that I see at all to the homeschooling uh, is the the lack of socialization. Um, how how do homeschool people get a chance to get their kids out for the socialization side of it? It's a shame if you miss your prom. Um, can yeah. you address that? Well, I don't think that there's very good socialization going on in schools, in traditional schools to begin with. I don't think that's a very good argument. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of value to locking kids up in a building each day with the same 30 kids, all who happen to be within a nine-month range, older or younger than them, where they're just taking orders from the teacher and they only get to talk to each other during break, lunch, and maybe recess, uh, where there's a lot of bullying going on and there's not a lot of role models and there's not an opportunity to interact with older people or younger people. I think that that's uh, the opposite of socialization. I think that homeschool families and other uh, families who choose to divert from the traditional schooling path, they can get far better socialization just by having their kids out in the world interacting with people. Uh, when I think about school, I think that socialization comes through bullying, through, uh, through fighting, through unhealthy norms that are created um, by uh, very powerful personalities within that class and it's dictated much by the one adult in the room. So uh, I encourage people to consider all the benefits of socialization outside of a traditional school environment. We've touched base on this show before about uh, uh, the deliberate dumbing down of America. Is that something you've had a chance to look into yet? It, uh, John Torrigato, the book? Uh, uh, the book, and it's... It's uh, the woman that used to be the Reagan uh, Department of oh, Education. Right, right, right. Yep, 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 Superb yep. book, a great history yep. book. She's basically just giving in the words of the people that were doing it, uh, that this is basically part of the program that that the money power has managed to program people. Uh, the opposite of liberal arts, meaning works worthy of free men. Uh, it, in the in the Roman version of that, slaves didn't get a liberal arts. They didn't want to create free men. Um, did, do you have any thoughts on, does this, do you see this as being a, a step in the right direction for trying to bring back liberal education? Absolutely. The, the current education system was created to create loyal workers and soldiers for the industrial uh, corporations and the state. And they wanted to suppress creative thought. They wanted to suppress motivation. And there are so many good people in education with good intentions, but they're working off of a model that was created to suppress the goodness in people, the, the, uh, the potential in people. And so it doesn't matter how many good people there are in education. If the model is set up you know, to harm uh, the potential of children, uh, it's not going to work. So I think that people need to really think long and hard about do they want their children in a system that was set up to cap their potential or do they want their children uh, to experience real education and that includes everything that you said the liberal arts it includes just living and being able to experience life as a, as a learner as opposed to uh, forcing them to sit in a chair and being told that they're a student and that they have to jump through all these arbitrary hoops such as testing uh, to prove their worth. We've got about six minutes left in this section on the education. Uh, can you can you kind of, uh, how do you select your curriculum for a homeschool kid? How do you how do you make sure that they do have all the skills they're going to need? Um, how do you how do you approach that? Well first I want to say is that curriculum is typically terrible. It doesn't <laughs> because what you're doing is you're trying to force the child to adhere to some arbitrary uh, linear path of learning based on yes. an adult who is typically basing that off of things that they have gone through. So to tell a seven-year-old kid um, in one room that they should be reading at the same level as a seven-year-old kid um, in another room, and that they should know the same about writing and arithmetic and all that, 
is absurd because every individual is different. We all learn in different ways. We learn uh, at different paces. And so um, curriculum, and we all learn, we, we all gather knowledge and construct knowledge you know, in different sequences. So for anyone to prescribe a curriculum and expect it to work for one kid, much less multiple kids, you know, it's just, it, it, it's not, they're not being um, honest with the way that children learn or they're being lazy and they're just using a curriculum because that's the easiest way to manage large groups of children. In a homeschooling environment, you don't have 30 kids in a room, so there's even less of a reason to have a curriculum uh, in that situation. Uh, I encourage uh, a lot of um, self-directed learning. Children can work with their parents to figure out what's important to the child and they can come to agreement on what things their child might work on. I believe in as much freedom and flexibility for the child as possible. Some people insist on having more control over uh, what their children are learning, and and I, I think that's fine. I think that um, each parent needs to figure out what's best for their child based on how their child learns. But as far as that child learning everything that they need to learn, let's not forget that 22% of all high school graduates in America, you know, their senior year, come out functionally illiterate, meaning they can't even read instruction manual. And so they're not learning what they need to learn. And so if that's the bar, then, you know, that's a pathetically low bar where one out of five kids is unable to read. So I think in a homeschool environment, far more children are going to learn what they need to learn. And I would say that is basic math, that is the ability to read, and that is the ability to write. But most importantly, it's the ability to think for themselves, to identify when they don't know something, and to identify a path for them to learning uh, what it is that they don't know. And most importantly, it's to figure out what their purpose is in life and what, how they're going to uh, function as an adult, both in terms of how they're going to earn money, which seems to be the only thing that most people care about when it comes to education, but also what their uh, human interactions are going to be with one another, how they're going to create relationships with partners, spouses, their children, their friends, coworkers, uh, how they're going to manage their own personal budget, how they're going to impact their communities. And none of this stuff is taught in traditional schools, but in a truly uh, progressive environment, a homeschool or unschooled environment, that is, that, those are things that children can really investigate uh, and learn from. And when I talk about progressive, a lot of people get turned off by the word progressive because they think I'm talking about uh, politics, but progressive education is basically a non-authoritarian, non-coercive, non-punitive, discipline-heavy uh, environment where you force kids to fit into a factory-style machine uh, and expect them to jump through the hoops and and write all the tests and all that stuff that traditional schools expect to Robin, you came out of the European, uh, I, I guess, just lump it all together in the European. It's not the American education system. Uh, do you see any similarities with homeschooling? Uh, well, it's interesting to listen, actually, to Antonio, because, you know, I, I kind of agree with him. I mean, almost entirely about, you know, the purpose of a good education um, and the value, therefore, of good homeschooling. But I've got to say that <laughs> uh, the list that he gave kind of provides the reasons why I think I got a good, I got a good education myself. And I, got, I was kind of privately educated, you know, fee-paying schools. Um, now, my parents didn't have a lot of money, so I, and I kind of went through on scholarships. So, um, you know, I was kind of very blessed to have those advantages. Uh, so I, I wonder what Antonio thinks. Does he see good um, private schooling as closer to homeschooling and being able to provide some of those, or you know, those, that list of important things for children, or kind of closer to what we would call in Britain state schools, but here you would call public schools? Yeah, I think that there are some progressive schools out there, and there's almost always private schools. The overwhelming majority of private schools are not progressive schools, though. Alfie Cohn writes about this, and he writes about it extremely well. Uh, there's a lot of schools that say that they implement progressive reforms, such as multi-age classrooms, uh, self 
case, self-directed learning, um, stuff like that, no testing. But at the end of the day, most of these schools are still very traditional in the way that they uh, put knowledge onto the children and, um, you know, and it's, it's punitive in, in the manner in which the children have to learn. And let's not let's not forget that we may have done well in school, um, but you have to take two things into consideration. One is what was our environment like? And I actually came from a very poor environment, from a very uh, from an uneducated family, and I did really well. But you know, a lot of people are are who do really well come from very strong home environments where education is celebrated and looked it's looked upon in a very positive light and they have a lot of support and resources, so it's easier for them to do well relative to the general population. Um, and two is there are just individual differences. When it comes to, I'm very mathematical, logical, um, and, you know, that's one of my strengths, and linguistic intelligence is one of my strengths if you're using the Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory, and those are the two things that the schools look for, and that's what they test. And so people who do well in, in those two arenas tend to do very well in school, uh, you know, regardless of the situation. But if you look at traditional schools, the overwhelming majority of children are being underserved by it. And I would argue that even people like us who weren't, who, where it, it catered to, you know, or at least it tested what we were strong in, that we were still inhibited in our growth um, because of the inability to be able to pursue knowledge um, on our own timeline and, you know, with our own motivation. That's uh, we've uh, we're about uh, one quarter of the way through the show. Uh, you came back from from Iraq, had done your hitch. Uh, you did a little time in the private sector with the investment service, and again, there'll be a link to your Wikipedia bio uh, that tells people a little bit more about it, so we don't have to get into a lot of detail. And um, before you could really get rolling real well, it looks like on the education program that you were trying to set up, um, you got into the subject, which is what the title for this show is, Occupy Peaceful Streets. Um, I, I know that there's some things you probably can't talk about uh, because you are coming to trial, um, but can you give us, can you touch base on it, and again, uh, people will be able to kind of read between the lines with the Wikipedia, I'll provide some links. Um, why peaceful streets, please? Yeah, so peaceful streets was started primarily because my case in which I got arrested was very unique in a lot of ways in terms of the situation. I wasn't a part of the initial uh, the, the initial police interaction. I was a bystander at the beginning. I was a designated driver, so I was over on New Year's, which is kind of, you know, not the norm. I am not black or Hispanic, so I'm not of a typical, although I'm a minority, I'm not of a typical um, race or ethnic group that is targeted by the police um, disproportionately. Uh, I've never been arrested. I've never had any criminal records, no bad experiences with the police. I'm a West Point graduate, a Stanford Business School graduate. I was on the board of nonprofits. I was a school teacher. And so and I was a, a war veteran. And so when people look at that, it just doesn't seem right. Well, what's going on here? And then on top of that, the only person who said that I committed this felony crime is this cop. And lo and behold, witnesses stepped forward to say that the cop lied. One took video from across the street that completely contradicted everything that the cop submitted in his affidavit. Then there was other um, audio, video evidence that is out there which proves that the cop lied. And so all of a sudden, here's a guy who typically isn't in the mold of someone who is a victim of police abuse. And I think a lot of people who normally wouldn't look at police abuse issues because it's always the people who, you know, aren't a part of their world or don't affect them because we've been kind of conditioned in our society to assume that certain, you know, people, certain classes, 
of people, certain races or whatever, have more interactions with police. And, you know, there's still embedded racism and classism in our society where people just assume, like, oh, yeah, well, that guy was probably doing something illegal. Um, and so with my case, because a lot of people came out of the woodwork who normally just don't focus on police abuse. And we all of a sudden had a really interesting coalition of races, of socioeconomic classes, of political leanings and loyalties. And they all rallied around me and my case. And we recognized that police abuse is such a huge problem. And, it's so, and there's many people who have a way worse than me, people who have been gravely injured or killed and or thrown in prison for many, many years um, because they didn't have someone who stepped forward to say that the cop was lying like I did. And so we decided to use that unique platform of this, of these people coming together to push for uh, a, cha- a culture change within society so that I'm not the only one, you know, someone in my position isn't the only one who can get the support of society um, to, to believe, like, hey, this guy might be innocent, the cop might be the liar, who has a, who will, you know, so these people have a chance when it comes to going to trial, and hopefully so that prosecutors stop pushing these bogus um, cases that put people in jail for crimes they didn't commit, and maybe even force the police to change their tactics so that they're not so aggressive and so criminal. That's, uh, again, you're you're part of the Occupy movement for the moment. Uh, we're kind of familiar with the concept of we've seen some very non-peaceful streets. We were, we've tried to make peaceful, we've tried to remain peaceful on our part. Um, not so much did the police state respond to us peacefully. Uh, and what we've also seen was veterans have tended to be targeted when they saw when they saw the veterans for peace in the Occupy movement, um, Marine veteran Scott Olson was shot in the head, um, touched off the first general strike, although it wasn't actually called a general strike in, in decades. Um, and it can't be called a general strike because that would be illegal. And again, we keep going over and over and over about there's a, there's a police state going on. That's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And how do we deal with it? What's the peaceful streets answer? I, I, did you guys, are you part of the movement to try to get more cameras out there for more accountability? Well, we handed out 100 video cameras at our first summit to people within the community so that they could film. We don't promote forcing the police to wear cameras. I know that there is a movement for that uh, for two reasons. One is we don't promote any sort of solution that requires the political process or agreement from the government. And it's not because I don't think that those things can have value. It's because there's so many people out there trying to do it. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to use what we thought was a unique platform to push for a culture change in society because ultimately we we have new rules and regulations and laws that get pushed out all the time, and the police just break them. For example, there's laws against murder, <laughs> but the two cops that killed Kelly Thomas just got away with it, you know, and, you know, and do we need another law to say, okay, cops, you cannot murder unarmed innocent people who haven't done, committed any crime? I mean, that, that law already exists, and I don't think that asking for more laws is going to help, and when it comes to videos, uh, they, you know, they're... I'm glad that they put dash cams on so many cars, but the reality is that when the cops commit the worst crimes, when they kill people, those dash cams always end up missing. They always end up getting suppressed. And so I am a little bit nervous about getting behind legislation or getting behind movements to get body cams on all cops, because then I think a lot of people will be like, all right, our job is done. Now the cops will be better. And I don't think that that'll be the case at all. Um, I, I do support people trying, though. But what we want to do is we want to try to change the culture so that people know their rights, so that people stand up for their rights, and so that people come together within their communities to, to hold the police accountable. By doing that, I think that that's the best way to ultimately end the police state, to end the abuse and the corruption, the violence, 
the uh, false prosecutions, the uh, the absurd, uh, the absurd thing of innocent people who've never done any harm. Kelly Thomas uh, verdict yesterday. I think that's what you were referring to, and we'll try to get some links up on it. Uh, obviously, that whole thing was on camera, and still the verdict came back in with the reactions to the Kelly Thomas uh, verdict are <laughs> pretty astounding to me. Uh, Robin, any thoughts here? Yeah, it's interesting to me coming from. Uh, the UK, that there's a big kind of cultural gap. Um, in fact, it's one of the biggest cultural gaps between Britain and the US. There's just a certain machismo in the, the United States. And I don't know if it's related to the fact that actually, although we have kind of a very libertarian founding here in the US, and there's this, you know, American self-narrative about the pioneer spirit and individualism, I think there's a default respect for authority, for power in this nation, which contrasts with what I see in the UK, where there is a, a default skepticism of anyone that would want to exercise power. Like, if, if in the UK you know someone has a position of power, your immediate question is, oh, you know, what is it about them that makes them want that? And, <laughs> and, and, and it's, um, you know, and so I'm, I wonder if kind of like a, a cultural context um, that this all fits in, that we need to address. I mean, you know, Antonio just brought up culture in, as opposed to law, as opposed to politics. But it does seem like there's a certain deference. You know, the fact that in American, um, like in the American media, it, well, as soon as somebody in authority does their job uh, well, they're a hero. And that word is bandied about all the time. And... Um, I just wonder if there's not too much of an acceptance of the role of authority in a very general sense in American society. You know, that this that that, that is fed off in these you know, in this respect. Yeah. I I'm, Americans love authority. There's no question about it. We love masters, we love political heroes, we always talk about, you know, respecting the troops and, and the cops. Um, and, and yeah, it is it is an interesting situation considering how Americans are always thought of as being a rugged individualist who don't who don't want big government. I think that that's quite a contradiction there. I do think that culture is the key, though. If we could get society to a point where they question the police every single time a policeman gets into a violent confrontation with people instead of assuming that the person was guilty, that we immediately question, did the cop just commit a crime? Did the cop do something wrong? When you go into a jury box and you're deliberating or you're looking to testimony from the police, I would like the natural reaction to be, uh, he's probably lying. I wouldn't see evidence that corroborates this. Whereas in the current system, People just automatically believe the cops, yeah. and they automatically assume that the uh, at the, that the defendant's guilty. The Kelly Thomas case is just amazing. I mean, just visually, when you look at the pictures, it's horrific. But we have a video that shows the entire lead-up to the incident. You have a cop walking up to Kelly and saying, "You see these You see these fists? They're about to f you up." Twenty seconds before he begins feeding him, which ultimately takes his life. You have the audio, which shows that Kelly pleaded, you know, probably a hundred times in total to either, you know, please stop killing me, someone please help me, I'm sorry. And and then you have video of witnesses right there, you know, immediately after the event who relayed what happened to a bus driver, not even knowing that they were on camera, saying basically this guy got murdered, he did absolutely nothing wrong, the cops, the cops murdered him. And with all of that evidence, for a jury to come back and say not guilty. I think that, that that is not a problem of just the police. That is a cultural problem. The cultural problem allows the police to act like they do, but it also allows people to side with these violent, vicious thugs as opposed to innocent victims. Do you think a large part of this cultural, this problematic cultural context is a result of the dereliction of the uh, of duty by the mainstream media. Because I think one of the things, you know, in the UK 
that means that there's this automatic cynicism of power, including very much the police, is that as soon as the police put a foot wrong in the UK, you know, it's a big deal, and it's a big deal on the mainstream media, not just in, you know, the social media among kind of anti-authoritarians, libertarians, and, you know, those crowds. Um, so, so, you know, it, it's what we're constantly exposed to um, in a mainstream context that does change our attitudes. Do we need to be pressing the media more, or is there no point? Well, I think the media can definitely help if they got on it. What's been interesting in Austin is the media was all over my incident early on, but they quickly moved away from it. I think they got a lot of pressure because the city of Austin gives a lot of advertising revenue to uh, the media outlets, and I think that the mm-hmm. city of Austin gives them so much room to navigate, and then the city of Austin is like, hey, guys, stop it. Um, there was one... Oh. There was one paper in particular which was very antagonistic from us, uh, towards me from day one. They didn't report on the initial arrest. They didn't, you know, this, this story that was pretty big in Austin wasn't covered by the Chronicle, which used to be a very progressive liberal paper. Now it's, uh, I think it's just a establishment-loving, um, democratic-oriented uh, paper, but, but they, uh, they used to be very critical of the police now. Uh, much less so, and they actually um, spun stories to actually make me look bad, and so they, they were going out of their way to spin the story in the favor of the police, and it just goes to show you that the media can't be trusted, but I think that a lot of it has to do, again, with, well, I think the Chronicle corrupt, but um, the rest of the media, as far as not reporting on I think it has to do a lot with the fact that they're a business, and if Americans wanted to see this stuff, and they insisted on it, um, and they insisted on coverage, then I think that um, that it would get more coverage. But I think that a lot of Americans don't want to believe that these cops are the threats in their neighborhood and that, you know, that, that we live in a corrupt system. They'd much rather just pay attention to who's president and what mistakes the president might be doing. But they don't want to focus on this level. Sure. And they, you know, they'll focus on the stuff that's more interesting and, you know, doesn't split society so much, um, where you have all these cops and, and public officials, uh, getting down on the media for it. Robin, uh, uh we, the subject of culture change has come up. Uh, you're big on, on, uh, trying to change attitudes, change paradigms. Um, the, the police until not that long ago in England didn't even carry guns. Is that correct? The police in England do not carry guns. And they are often asked to vote on this um, as a body. Uh, and they always vote against, or, I mean they have so far, voted against being armed. Now think about that. Our own police vote against arming themselves. Um, and it does make a very big difference culturally. I think, um, and uh, you know, and, it, and it's interesting because you know, being now a kind of find out member of the American Liberty Movement, I completely get the uh, the gun rights argument. Um, but I feel, I actually feel differently. I think, I think about the population in Britain being disarmed, all the while the police is disarmed. Um, I'm not saying that's a state of affairs that we should. Uh, you know, try and replicate here, but um, w- there is a there is a very different there is a very different attitude, and it's actually in some ways it remains true to what the police were founded as being. They were founded as being a an organisation, a civilian organisation to help civilians. It wasn't originally about law enforcement. It was about um, you know help helping citizens be citizens. So, you know, the whole idea of arming police actually kind of goes against the original purpose of the police in, uh, in England. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just very, very different. Obviously, the UK, we have armed units, but they are only brought out um, on specific authorities for specific reasons. Um, and that's still true. That's still true. Yeah, well... Yeah. I think I think that 
the people should be at, armed at least as much as the police, if not more. Um, I would love to see the police become disarmed, and yeah. then their responsibility would be to uh, actually talk to people and reason with people, and they couldn't resort to violent force uh, so quickly because, one, they don't have the tools to just um, go around shooting people, but two is, you know, they can't go around just, you know, beating someone who might actually be able to defend themselves. Right now, they, they enjoy, yeah. you know, a, you know, a, a completely backward, um, you know, uh, use of force in which, you know, all someone has to do is, you know, scare them or they only have to claim that they scare them and then they can shoot them. Right. So I, I think that that's terrible. But yeah, I believe in, in gun control when it comes to government agents. They should, Absolutely. they should be stripped of their, their weapons. But, you know, in, in America, the history of the police is not one of the police being here to help us. You know, the history of the police, you know, they were um, the first ones who were running down runaway slaves, you know, enforcing slavery. Mm -hmm. And and in the uh, American West, you know, they were the ones that were hunting down and killing Native Americans. So in the United States, the history of the police is one of tyranny, control, and racism. Yeah, and, you know, you know, that speaks to, again, to this point about culture, because it's always the history of the institution that kind of drives, you know, that drives its present culture. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're seeing it, you're seeing it there. You know, and interestingly, in the UK, um, again, for what it's worth, you know, there is at least as much violent crime per capita in the U UK. As There's the actually more there. violent crime in the UK. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I left it open with at least, but I, I think you're, you're right, Antonio, yeah. Um, I didn't want to get into the whole, you know, amount of gun crime versus knife crime and which is more violent yeah, right. and all that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, you know, but still, we, you know, we don't have a runaway violent society. Um, the police do their jobs because most, you know, without being armed, because most of what the police do doesn't involve deadly force. I mean, it, you know, there are only few occasions where that's even a question. And, you know, as I say, necessary units can be mobilized um, when mm -hmm. required. But you, I mean, you just never see them on the streets. I, I don't think, I actually don't think I've ever seen an armed cop in the UK except in an airport. I, I think yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah, in the United States, the cops kill many hundreds of people every year, murder them. Absolutely. And uh, I think it was two years ago, in the country of Germany, the entire country of Germany, which I think is the most populous, if not, or, or at least it top is. three, um, in, you know, in, in, Europe. in Europe. Yeah. yeah, and in the entire country, in a year, they expended something like 70 bullets. That's in the entire country for a whole yeah. year. And half of those expended bullets were used on animals to put them out of their misery because they got hit by a car or something. I mean, it's remarkable. So, uh, you know, I don't know why it's so hard to believe that we can't live in a society where police don't go around beating people up and shooting people. Do you think part of it is like, I, I know this is going to sound really crass, but do you not think that part of this is a kind of um, mass, again, macho, boys with toys mentality? I mean, the I, I, reason I ask is because one of the things that, that struck me the most when I you know, moved to the United States, was that the FBI go around in big black trucks with blacked out windows. Mm -hmm. And it looks like something out of a Hollywood movie. And mm -hmm. I think if you're living in a Hollywood movie context, um, and you're working in a Hollywood movie context day in and day out, um, you probably start thinking that's what real life is. And if you put, if you put cops in the UK in those big blacked-out SUVs, I mean, they would just be laughed at. They would just be laughed off the street. It's I don't think there's, <laughs> there's not enough laughing at the police right now. I think maybe humor probably is the best way that we could begin to change this culture. Uh, there's a couple of statistics that will fit in here, and again, there will be links up on it. There were fewer police killed. It was a record year last year. Fewer police were killed by firearms in the United States than since 1880-something. So part of the verdict from the Kelly Thomas was they felt afraid. Uh, first off, he wasn't even armed. Um, and the second part was, what were they afraid of? Uh, there are fewer cops being shot 
than since Wyatt Earp was a lawman. Um, any thoughts on that, guys? Yeah, well, I, I think that these cops, they are being trained to stay at their scares in order to justify their crimes, and they're being trained to be extremely violent, aggressive people. I agree with you. We need to laugh at cops all the time. You know, people say respect the police. I say disrespect the police. Go out of your way to disrespect them. Now, I don't mean you have to be rude, right? But, I mean, I, don't say hi to them. Don't give, you know, don't. Don't don't call them sir. If they pull you over, just do what you have to do. But don't sit there and treat them like they're a superior class uh, of citizen. Um, and my God, if someone sits there and talks to you about how proud they are of their of their son who just became a police officer, and drop some truth on them as far as well. I, I hope he doesn't become like the rest of them. Did you know that the cops do this? Did you know that the cops do that? You know, if you hear someone who says that they're going to be a cop. Ask them, well, are you sure you want to do that? You know, don't you, would, would you rather, like, add some value to society? I mean, and, and, of course, do it in a way which isn't extremely offensive and automatically gets them to turn you off. But uh, the, the last thing we should be doing is teaching our kids to respect the police. It, it should be the opposite. Now, there's a second factor that goes with this, too, and I wanted to touch base on it before we move along. Uh, we're going to try and get Sheriff Mack uh who's a proponent of constitutional sheriffs. And again, Robin, will want to have you touch base on what the sheriff comes from the English side of our heritage, and you'll be able to kind of give us a better perspective on sheriff. But as far as the disarm the police and arm the citizens, that was uh, Sheriff Mack is talking about posse comitatus, the ability of being able to raise the hue and cry. That that cop, basically, he does have a whistle, and he does have the right to, if he tells you, help me, then it is your duty to help that policeman. Um, can you touch base on that, guys? Wait, we have a duty to help policemen, but they have no duty to help us? We're talking about the culture change. How do we bring that culture about? No, it's the other way around. Of course, they have a duty to help us, no, um, and we we are their protection. We are their protection. Um, well, well, if we think of it for that culture change, yeah, not well, the present, but the culture change. Yeah. Well, they they don't they don't have a duty to, to protect us. They've actually taken to the Supreme Court and won that you know the police have no duty to protect you, so they can let you get. Uh, murdered in the street, they can watch a, you know a gang of people beat you to death, and, and that's completely uh, just you know that's that's fine. Um, you know how do we get that culture change with the police? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not as big of a fan of sheriffs as a lot of people are. Um, I believe that if there were good sheriffs out there, they would be doing something about all the criminal ones out there. I think that the most egregious, most despicable. Uh, law enforcement official in the entire country is Sheriff Joe um, out in Arizona. I think that he is, you know, he, he commits uh, crimes against humanity, and uh, and he's a sheriff. So I'm not as big on the sheriffs as so many people are. I would love to see more sheriffs start standing up. I, I know that a bunch of them are willing to stand up for Second Amendment rights, but it would be great if they would start standing up for First Amendment rights and uh, Fourth Amendment rights and stuff like that. Robin? What what was the sheriff and and it, the first thing that comes to mind is the sheriff of Nottingham, so we don't necessarily have a positive view of yeah. what the sheriff was. Uh, yeah, I, but can you? I actually, I actually don't know the, the specific history of sheriff. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me that, that you know the, the role of the sheriff in the U.S. Um, is actually really. I mean, it's, it's quite importantly and well-defined, right? Um, you know, I mean, there, constitutionally, there are ways in which the sheriff has a jurisdiction that, uh, when it comes to law, that, you know, our president doesn't. And, and that seems to me to be um, extremely important. Uh, I don't know the extent to which um, that use of the office of sheriff reflects... Uh, the use of the office of sheriff in um, in old England. I don't know, but it would be interesting to find out, so I'll probably look into that before the next show. Yes, because I think Sheriff Mack, that's something he's talking about, and 
what we're trying to do is move beyond the present. It's obvious that, that the police state is not working. Um, yeah, that that's becomes more obvious every day. But the, the posse comitatus, I, the posse comitatus is exactly what you did on New Year's Eve in 2012. You went to the aid of a fellow citizen. Um, that's the posse. Uh, so that you've made that culture change. It's the rest of our culture that needs to start making that change. Do you see what I'm kind of headed towards here, Antonio? Yeah. I mean, but I only went so far. I just yelled for them to stop, and then I got That's assaulted. you and cry. Yes, right. and that was because it's a police state, but we're not talking about, we're, we're talking about how do we move beyond this. Yeah. And you are an example of somebody who has moved beyond that. You did the right thing. The hue and cry was raised, and again, Robin, hopefully you can touch on hue and cry from the European tradition, but basically... The whole purpose of natural rights is to protect the rights of the individuals. Um, you did that on New Year's. You're suffering the price for that because we live in a police state. But again, we're trying to move through that change. Any thoughts here, guys? Did I lose you? No, I mean... I I, I I believe in culture change. I, I encourage it. You know, I think that that's what we're trying to do with the Peaceful Streets Project. Um, I just have no faith in, you know, any sort of efforts to try to get the police to be that change. I don't think it's going to happen. I encourage people to try. I mean, I know Oath Keepers are out there as well trying to, um, you know, get police to commit to not doing certain crimes. But, you know, right now crime is rampant within the law enforcement agencies um, around the country, and, you know, none of them are standing up. And so I don't know what it's going to take to get even a couple of them to stand up. Um, I'm, I'm more focused on the rest of society trying to get them to change the way that they view their relationship with law enforcement and uh, the way that they come to assist those who are being harmed by law enforcement. Yeah, and, you know, a big part of this is obviously, I mean, that's almost like a, a subset of changing our relationship to the law and the idea that the law is something that comes down um, to us, to which we have to comply, with which we have to comply. Whereas, in fact, of course, we live in a common law tradition. And, um, you know, now there's, it's great to see there are increasing efforts um, about, for example, jury nullification. You know, and if we, if these are successful, if we can educate uh, the common man that um, the law is actually his and that the ultimate authority for the law and its enforcement lies with the citizens, um, yeah, there are a number of ways of doing that. This education about jury nullification, which goes back to, I mean, Anglo-Saxon times, um, is, is one. Uh, you know, it's a very kind of, it could be a very broad-based way of, um, changing how we perceive authority and specifically, you know, law enforcement. Um, there's certainly efforts, you know, the dream nullification thing is certainly something I'm kind of throwing a bit of my weight behind. Uh, hopefully it can have a broader impact. Anyone there? Yeah, I I'm here. I'm here. Uh, we know you're uh, we know you're backed up against the clock on another interview coming up, and you're gonna, if you would, kind of help us on a countdown. Uh, when we get about two minutes out, I'd like to let you get your last say. Uh, so please help me on watching the clock. I can't see my computer; it blacked out on me. Um, we're we're down to obviously the last ten minutes or so of the show, and you've kind of touched base on something that. I really wanted to, to get with with you um, because you seem to be very disappointed with the liberty movement, um, and and that's something I really wanted to get your views on. I had no idea how much decisive, de how badly divided the liberty movement was. Uh, your side of it, you're seeing a lot of racism, and I would have not, have, I wouldn't have dreamed that it was there till I saw that just in the last couple of weeks. Please, uh, 
What are your thoughts here? How do we get out of this mess? We have to stand together, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I, I think that there is a lot of racism, but also sexism, uh, homophobia, and just just really degenerate behavior that, um, you know, that that can only be classified as extremely childish. Um, so I don't think it's a... I don't think that the sexism or racism uh, is the majority of the movement at all. Uh, I think that it's, it's a minority. The problem is, is that the strain runs throughout the movement, um, just like it runs throughout society. Uh, but the thing that bothers me the most about it is that uh, these overt bigots and these um, people who act in these completely antisocial ways, such as joking about raping little girls publicly, um, the fact that they do this uh, publicly without pushback and without people calling them out is just really disconcerting to me. It really bothers me for someone who's invested so much time and energy and money into the liberty movement over the past uh, four years. I mean, personal time and money, like literally, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, many, many, many hours per week and many, many thousands of dollars. Um, it's just really painful to see how so many people in this movement will rally behind over bigotry more than they'll rally behind people who are standing up to the government. And it leads me to seriously question the people within the movement, not everyone, but there are a sufficient number of people within the movement, what their motivations are. Do they really want to live in a free society, or do they simply want to be free from the state so that they can go ahead and maintain their positions of power and privilege so that they can uh, be a bigot um, and, you know, mistreat people in a way in which they can't be punished by the state. And I don't think that's true liberty, that's true freedom. That's just, you know, trying to get, um, you know, get people off your back for being a really crappy human being. So I would like to see the liberty movement do better. I would like to see the liberty movement acknowledge that oppression doesn't come only through the state, but there can be such things as social oppression. Uh, I, I would like the liberty movement to acknowledge that uh, racism actually harms people. They think that it has to be physical violence for someone for someone to be harmed, but, um, you know, being mistreated and bullied um, causes psychological harm, and words do hurt, um, and, uh, and rape culture does exist. And, you know, those words do lead to people believing that they can get away with rape, which does harm people. And so I think that there's just a huge segment of liberty movement that lives in this idea of sort of fourth grade liberty, which is I can do whatever I want. Don't you tell me what I can do. You know, I'm a free man, as opposed to a more civilized, evolved uh, version of liberty which is essentially, I want to be free to live my life how I see fit, and I want to create a better society so other people can live free as well. And when any one of us is oppressed, you know, that does not mean that I live in a free society. Amen. Um, and, and again, until just a couple of weeks ago, I really would have thought this was an exaggeration. Uh, within the last couple of weeks, it's been an eye-opener to me because if we are divided, the money power wants to keep us divided. Uh, divide us like between races, between sexes, between age groups, between fill in the blanks. The military term is called defeat in detail. We vastly outnumber the 1%, the fraction of the 1%. Um, Robin, any thoughts here? Yeah, I... That all sounds good to me. <laughs> Everything that you guys have just said, um, I've got yeah, little, little to little to add and nothing to argue with. I've uh, got about uh, six minutes left by my clock, and that won't give you much time, Antonio. Please give us your last thoughts. What do we need to be thinking about? Um, and there'll be a link here. You're kind of tied up right now because you are actually trying to take Austin trying to get some of the corruption knocked down in the police in Austin. Uh, there's a, there'll be a link to how we can get you some funding. Like you said, you spent a lot of money. You spent a lot of time. You spent a lot of emotional resources. 
Um, we want to make sure that you can carry on that fight. Um, any any last thoughts, Antonio? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I would just encourage people to consider the ways in which they want to advance a free society. And everyone has their own constraints, whether it be time, whether it be money, whether it be commitments to other people, such as a family, to a family member who's hurting, whatever it might be. So not everyone can commit uh, the same uh, in the same degree or in the same types of ways as other people. And there's so many problems in the world that we can't possibly address them all. Uh, but we, what we can do is we can prioritize and we can identify certain things that we can focus on to try to advance the free society. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to advance the free society by taking on the corrupt police through the Peaceful Streets Project. I encourage people to check out PeacefulStreets.com or check us out on Facebook as well. I'm taking on traditional education, which destroys the, the future of so many millions of children each year. I'm doing that through Beeler Education, so you can check that out at BeelerEd.com. I'm taking, I, I do whenever I can, I, I, I support the anti-war effort. I, I hope that people can support people such as antiwar.com, Veterans for Peace, organizations such as that. And I am taking on uh, social oppression, particularly within the liberty movement, um, because I think that that is really going to hold the liberty movement back. If people uh, want to promote an ideal of a freer society, a vision of a freer society, uh, then they're going to have to sell it to other people who expect the government to protect them. And it's going to be really hard to sell the idea of a free society if the people who are selling it are the same people who are joking about raping little girls because then what, what person would want to be in a free society where people like that run, run free? People who uh, are overtly racist, why would minorities want to be part of such a movement? And people who are overtly sexist, why would women want to be part of such a movement unless they can, um, you know, unless, you know, they tend to enjoy benevolent sexism, um, which, uh, you know, it seems to be a problem with them in our movement. Uh, why would they want to be, if they're homosexual or transgender, why would they want to be part of a movement where the favorite uh, insult um, is to call someone a faggot? Um, I think that there's just so much growth that we can have as a movement, and we can really become better, but there's no way that we can win, uh, win freedom, you know, in our lifetimes if people look at the people who are shouting for freedom and they're scared the hell of them uh, because they think that they, once the government's gone, they're all going to put on white sheets and they're going to start raping uh, people in the streets. So uh, those are the four things that I tend to focus on. I would love it if people would want to support me in any of those endeavors, get involved in some of those, but there are so many other causes out there as well that people can engage in. And I just hope that people can identify a couple of those that are most valuable to them and dedicate their time, uh, their money, whatever it is that they can do to support whatever they believe is the best way to move us towards a better, freer society. One last thing before you get out. I, I really wanted to get your thoughts on how do we keep the vets, the suicide rate among vets is horrifying. Um, in the last couple of seconds before you get out, help us keep them alive. We need them, Antonio. Uh, we need to stop sending them to war, first of all. That's a start. And now when they're home. Yeah, I, it, this, is, this is where I think that people need to reach out a helping hand and start uh, assisting uh, one another. And if you know someone who's a veteran, reach out to them and see if they're doing okay. There's so much mental illness within the community uh, because of what's happened to them and, and what they go through in the military. And... It's usually a very, very lonely thing, and um, the government does not do a good job when it comes to dealing with mental illness, um, but, but the private sector certainly doesn't do a good job. You know, our society does not make it a priority, so it, I, I would encourage people to identify ways in which they can interact with veterans who are coming home or veterans who have been home who have problems and uh, start businesses to employ them. Um, sponsor them so that they can get counseling or at least get them to a VA where they can access that counseling. It's tough. Uh, I would definitely consider reaching out and supporting some of the uh, veterans organizations that might help them, but 
the numbers are so great. Uh, it's, it would that would that requires a change in society as well. We're working on that. We know we got to get you out. That'll be it for episode 24. We thank you for being with us, Antonio. Thanks for standing and welcome home. <laughs>